Uh, there are uh, a number of phrases that you might hear when you're younger that stick with you, um, and these might be phrases that maybe your mom or daddy spoke into your life, or a grandparent, or a mentor, or someone has said something that uh, just sort of sticks with you along the way. Um, I have a I have a pastoral mentor who shared a couple of those with me. I shared one this past Wednesday night during prayer meeting: "Hurt people, hurt people." Have you ever heard that? Hurt people, hurt people. Uh, it is usually someone who is injured or hurting that will then hurt other people, it seems, without discretion or concern. Hurt people, hurt people. Uh, another one that was shared with me, it stuck with me through the years, is, uh, is to walk slowly through crowds. Walk slowly through crowds. Uh, that's a statement that was made. If Jesus cared enough about people to deal with them individually, we shouldn't get in such a rush to walk past people. So walk slowly through crowds. Uh, there's others that, that might stick with you. Another one is um, you'll never hit a goal if you don't set a goal. You'll never hit a goal if you don't set a goal. And I think that's true. So many people will miss their goals that they should be setting for themselves either because they just don't set one at all um, or they don't even think to set one. Uh, we have goals here at this church, and I love that our church has goals, and we set goals, such as the pumpkin uh, patch we have coming up. You heard a little bit about that already. We have a goal. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so we, because that's a goal, it's not just to have a really good event and to send you home with really cheap pumpkins, but we want to also, we want to see people get saved. That's a goal that we have, and so we're inviting you to pray through uh, pray through that same aim with us and that objective, seeing God would bring people to himself through the gospel presentations that will take place at the pumpkin patch. We have another goal, and that is that we're in the middle of a building program. Have you noticed? Uh, there's construction going on. We have a goal to to grow the facilities to create an environment, and this is a, a goal that the Lord gave this church that predates me, but I'm more than glad to participate in it. And so we have a goal to move into the next phase, and I'm so thankful that we have goals. What's keeping us from moving forward, I'm told, is money. We need to raise like $6 million. And I told the first service, there's two ways that churches raise money. One, you either give the money, or we have to have people die and leave the money. So how you want to raise the money is up to you. <laughs> you can give it generously, or you can leave it generously. Doesn't matter to me. Uh, as much as it probably does to some of your dear friends. That's a goal we have. So, so we want to see, the, we wanna see the, the funds come in so that we can continue to, to improve the facilities the Lord's entrusted here at Lone Oak First Baptist Church and, um, and grow. There's, there's other sayings, though, that have stuck with me. My mom shared with me a couple that have really served me well in life. Um, they've really served me well in life. Um, she told me don't, uh, never to bite the hand that feeds you. Right, that's a good one. Um, she reminded us that very, very frequently. Um, and uh, she said, she shared with us, never ask a woman her age. That served me well over the years. Um, <laughs> on my way out of the, the first service, a gentleman, a, a much older man, um, who evidently has the scars from this one, he said, oh, I have another one to add to your list of sayings that you shouldn't forget. Um, never ask a woman when she's expecting if she hasn't mentioned that she's pregnant. true statement. Those are words that you can live by or you can die by. 
there's a, a, there are a number of statements that just sort of stick with us. When I was in college, my last year of undergraduate studies, I had a roommate, and this roommate um, was in a long, long-term relationship with uh, a young lady who came from a very Christian home. Um, we were in Oxford, Mississippi going to school, but she was from Birmingham, and she came from a, a fantastic, just very uh, well-rooted family. And I remember her parents, they would come and visit quite often, and I had the opportunity to get to meet them as well. But when they were leaving after paying us a visit, they had kind of the same sayings that they would they would sort of speak to their daughter. And they would say, we love you, and we're so proud of you. And then they would make this statement. I want you to remember this statement as well. They would say, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. This is something that we must remember. You see, who we are is defined by whose we are. If we belong to the culture, if we belong to popular opinion, then that becomes who we are. Because whose we are determines the value of who we are. And one of the reasons that people have misunderstood their value is because they've misunderstood who is the owner and possessor of their life. But we need to remember who we are and we need to remember whose we are because whose we are can determine who we are. And we are creations of the Creator God, a good, holy Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, and because He is the one who has possession over our lives, we can have a right understanding of the value of our life. Therefore, I would urge you, as that young lady was urged, every time she saw her parents, remember who you are and remember whose you are. In the series that we're walking through, we've been studying Psalms 139, This week we're on the third of a four-part series, looking at verses 13 through 18. I'm so thankful for Kenny reading those for us earlier. The first stanza, this, this chapter can be broken down into four stanzas. The first stanza of this chapter talks about God knowing everything and how even though He knows everything, He loves us anyway. The second stanza, verses 7 through 12, uh, the, the psalmist says... Because God knows everything, my tendency and our tendency as sinful people is to try to run away from God. We get embarrassed, we become shameful, and we just want to hide from God. And the psalmist concludes, we can try to run, but we can never get away from Him because He's always present. And here in this third stanza, verses 13 through 18, we're going to learn that God not only knows everything and not only is everywhere, but God has created us. He has had the capacity As David Kidner writes, he has the capacity to see the invisible and to penetrate the inaccessible and all the while to be operative there. And so as has been our tendency through this series, I pray that it will continue to be that we can have a time of teaching so that we can instruct our minds. That way we can get to the time of preaching where we have our hearts inspired. And so I need to do a little bit of teaching again this morning. We're talking about the incommunicable attributes of God. I've just been so impressed by how you folks have just absorbed what really is deep theological teaching. Deep theological teaching. The pastor search committee, when we moved here, they told us that y'all were good people, but they didn't tell me you're as smart as you are. And I can't believe that. They failed to mention that you were bright people. But you have been. You've been just gobbling up this deep theological teaching throughout this series. 
The communicable and incommunicable attributes are, are, are substances of the conversation that we've had through Psalms 139, and the difference between these are such. Communicable attributes are characteristics of God that we can receive and we can reflect. So God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy, God's patience, these are parts of His personality and His character that we can receive in ourselves, and then we can exhibit or reflect into relationships or onto other people. The incommunicable attributes, which are really the attributes we've been learning about in this series, are the characteristics of God that we cannot receive. We can experience them. We're talking about that, but we can't receive them and we can't reflect them. We've talked about a number of those characteristics really pulling strongly from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's list of incommunicable attributes. But there's three that are going to be of, of primary focus this morning. And I just want to share with you kind of those three and a brief, teach you just briefly what those are. And then we're going to jump into studying God's Word. The first that we're going to come into contact with today is God's omnipotence, which is that God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful, which means that not only is He all-powerful, but He's the most powerful being in all existence. And as such, because He's all-powerful, He is capable of fulfilling His will in the world. Another is God's eminence. See, God is the creator of all things. He is all-present. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing, but He's also transcendent, which means that He is above and beyond. Because he created everything, he exists outside of creation, but God's eminence means that he has become personally and individually involved with our lives. He transcends, he's outside, but his eminence speaks of him being involved with us. We're going to learn about how God has been intimately and individually involved with us as an eminent God. And finally, we're going to see that God is infinite. He is bigger and greater and larger and in all quantitative measures, more than all of created space. God is infinite. No beginning, no end, no reason to be limited by this 3D world that we live in. God is larger than all of the created place. He's infinite. You see, when we know the deep things about God, we can begin to understand not only whose we are, but we can understand who we are. And I would challenge you this morning, as we jump into this message, I want to challenge you in this way. If you are questioning your value, if you are questioning your value or if you are confused to know what value you hold, I want to challenge you to dig into the depths of who God is. Because it is from the center and the core of understanding who our Creator is that we begin to grasp and to be refreshed by understanding how valuable we are to Him. And I want to challenge you in the same way, not to look into this world or look into culture or look into opinions to find your value, but look to God and find your value in the one true living God. Here's what we can discover about God, looking at verses 13 through 18. There's really three discoveries that we make about our creation. And in this particular stanza, it talks about God's creative being, His creative capability as He created us. 
And we learn more specifically that God was involved. First, there's really three discoveries we can make among others about God's involvement in our creation. Number one, we see that God formed our inward being. In verse 13, we read these words, for you formed my inward parts. Now, before we get to that, let me just bring to your attention, the second word in that verse is you. This is an emphatic you. This is not a casual or coincidental you, but this is a uh, exaggerated and very straightforward statement that you, God, are the one who created. Remember, we cannot look to anyone else for the substance of our value except to the one who created us. This is the one who determines our value. Therefore, we must look to the Lord God, not to anyone else and not to anything else, but to God. So I would encourage you in this study to underline that word you so that you understand you is emphatic and you should stick out to you. Don't be scared to write in your Bibles. It's okay to write in your Bibles, but I would encourage you if you are, uh, if you're one that writes in there to underline the word you so that you can remember that it is God that the psalmist is talking about. He says, you formed, you created, you manufactured my inward parts. Now specifically, inward parts is talking about the kidneys. Why is he talking about the kidneys? Well, he's talking about the kidneys because that's the word that he used. But what he means for us to take away is that the Lord has created our essential organs. He's created our essential organs. The way that our inward bodies work and how they cooperate and how the organs function off of each other is just an amazing feat. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to think that we have all of these individual organs that are functioning in their individual capacities that allow us to go through our individual days. How? It's amazing. It's amazing to me, and I don't even know what I'm talking about. He says that God formed our inward being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God didn't just form our inward being, but he went into the most sacred space that there is in creation, the mother's womb. And there he created, he formed, he was individually involved with the intimate details of forming your inward being. And the psalmist tells us not only did God form our inward being, but God also formed our bodies. Look at verse 15. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. My frame, my body, my structure, my skeleton, my being was not hidden from you, even in the darkest places, but you were there and you were like an embroiderer who was just stitching me together piece by piece according to your will and according to your knowledge and according to your wisdom so that I would turn out exactly the way that I've turned out. You may not be pleased with your body, but God looks at it as a masterpiece. You might think, I, I, I wish that I would do this, or I wish that I looked that way, and, and we're all in about two months going to be thinking, I wish I wouldn't have eaten so much. But God doesn't see your body as a mistake. He sees your body as a masterpiece that He has put together. Your value is not what culture says it is. Your value is not based on what the magazines say it is. Your value is not based on anyone else's opinion except for the one who owns you and created you and loves you. And it is God. And we didn't get to this particular attribute, but you should know this. God doesn't make mistakes. And you aren't one. And you weren't the first. 
Because there is no mistake and you are a masterpiece. God has formed our inward being and God has formed our bodies. And we should also note the psalmist says God has formed our days. This is one of those moments where we're going to see this and we're going to be like, wow, this is amazing. Look with me at verse 15. Let's read through into verse 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, whose eyes? God's eyes. God. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So he saw us even before we were there to be seen. He saw us in our embryonic stage. That's what he means. Before, our, before we had formed into an identifiable substance, God knew who we were. So any of this, any of this talk about about being pro-choice or pro-life and whether or not life is viable or if life or if a child even exists before what we call quote-unquote viability, God already made the choice that life was there, right? We're not going to delve too deep into, into life choices or lifestyle choices. We're not going to delve too deep into it because it's outside of the, the scope of the sermon. But I just want to tell you that God has already made the choice. And if you are a Christ follower, his choice is your choice. And that is a choice for life. Because your life matters, their life matters, all of the lives matter. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what he's saying here is that God created your inward parts. God created your outward parts. But God also created every day that you would live for you before you were even created. He didn't just create every day for you before you were created. He wrote every single day down before you were even created. This is big. This is God. Who else, what else has the capacity or the capability? Who else is infinite enough to be able to think about every single day that you would live before you ever live and fashion it and shape it and form it for you? These days that you live, that you feel like you're just being drugged through, that you're being carried through, you've been forced through, these aren't days that have control over you. These are days that God has created for you, and he did so even before you were created. Now, this leads us understanding how deep God is, and, and I pray that as you hear these teaching points, I pray that you would just be at the point where you're like, this is huge. This is big stuff. And now you will come to a place where you respond by recognizing how big, how great, how good God is. Three things we discover. Now let's talk about some responses. The psalmist gives us, he gives us some responses and what the response is. In verses 17 and 18, the response is, I'm not God. I'm not God. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. In other words, I'm coming to the conclusion, God, that you are God and that I am not God. So important for us to understand this. If we're going to remember who we are and whose we are, we have to remember that we are not God and that he is. We have to recognize that there is a God and and you ain't him. 
And the psalmist comes to this conclusion by thinking about the thoughts that God has and trying to count them and then recognizing that we can't count the thoughts of God because they're more plentiful than there is sand on the face of the earth. He writes this, we go back to verse 17, the second part of verse 17. He says, how vast is the sum of them. Now there's some creative figurative language here. How vast, talking about the quantity of the Lord's thoughts. Vastness in its most literal language means there's so many. The weight of God's thoughts are heavy enough to crush my bones. That's very literal language here. How much does a thought weigh? I don't know. But God's thoughts are so plentiful and so many that if they had any weight to them, they would crush us. And he says, how vast are the sum of your thoughts? How vast are the sum of them? The sum of them. He says this again. This is literal figurative language in the, in the ancient text is, it makes my head spin. Contemporary translation, we hear these things and this is what our mind does. This is God's thoughts. Um. There's a, there's a way that we can just help bring the people to understanding how many God's thoughts are and how beyond us they are. Have you ever thought about how long it takes you to count? Some of you are saying, no, no, actually I haven't. Well, I have, and let me share some of that with you. If you were to consider how long it takes to count... Imagining that we could do like David said and we could count what the Lord has done... This is what it would take for you. And we need to start with some basics to lay the foundation. And again, hang with me here because it's going to be good. So we've put together some timelines for you so that you could know how long it might take to count. If you were to count to 100 by ones, it would take you approximately 25 seconds to count to 100 by ones. Now that's for the normal folk. If you were to count to 1,000 by ones, it would take you approximately 10 minutes to count that long. So if you wanted to count to 1,000, one, two, three, we're not going to do it right now, it would take you approximately 10 minutes. If you wanted to count to 1 million, it would take you approximately 11 days, 13 hours, and 46 minutes. Don't ask me how I know. Now, if you wanted to count by one to 1 billion it would take you approximately 100 years, no lunch breaks, no sleep breaks, no bathroom breaks, consecutively, continuously, at the same pace, one after another, counting to 1 billion, 100 years. Now, the Scripture tells us that God knows every day of every person before they've lived. He has known it, He has formed it, and He's written it down. So, imagine if we could not count every thought the Lord has, but what if we just tried to count every person that God has ever created? How long would that take? Well, according to a loosely reliable internet site... We have had over 117 billion people live on the face of the earth. 117 billion people. And if we wanted to just simply count each person that has ever lived one time, it would take us 11,700 years. No lunch breaks, no bathroom breaks, no sleep breaks. Just to count the people, much less the details that God knows about them. 
But you know, the psalmist, he takes us to a deeper place than even counting the people. What if we were to try to just simply count the days that God has formed for every person who has ever lived? So what if we were to count every day that has ever been lived by each individual person, where would that take us? Well, again, according to a loosely reliable internet site, the average person lives 27,776 and a half days. I don't know if your half day is at the beginning of your life or the end of the life, but according to science, you got one of them. In order for us to figure out how long it would take us just to simply count, not to know in detail, but to count every day that's been ever lived by any person who has ever lived, we would have to take 117 billion and we would have to multiply it by 27,776.5. Let me do the calculation really quick in my mind and I'll tell you the answer. And here's the answer. If we multiply that, that gives us 3,249,850,500,000. And it should not be the zeros on the end. That should be point. No, that's not right. Man, how did I get mixed up on that? Unbelievable. It's three gazillion. 249 trillion, eight gazillion's the right word, I checked. 249 trillion, 850 billion, 500 million is the number that we would have to count to by one. How long would it take to count every day of every person who has ever lived? Just so you know how big God is. Beyond this, this is the answer. It would take us, if we counted that by one, it would take us 324,985 years, two weeks, four days, and six hours, approximately, to count by one every day that had ever been lived by every person who has, according to a loosely reliable internet site, ever lived. And don't forget that for every day that we spend counting, according to the United Nations, another 385,000 people are born. I got with our finance department here at the church to see if we could figure out the equation to figure out how long it would take us to add that exponential, exponential factor. And I don't want you to lose your trust in them, but we couldn't figure it out. What we discovered is it would take us longer and we would never catch up. My friends... The one who created us knew every single one of those days for every single person who had ever been created and he knew them before he created any one of us. And you're wondering if you have value? Let me tell you. Your value is that the God who knew all of those numbers and wrote them in his book before anything had ever been created, he was the one that was individually, intimately intricately involved in forming your inward parts, your body, and every day that you would live. So you wonder if you have value? To Him you do. And that leads us to our second and last response. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. If you are not on the worship team, I want you to open your Bibles again at Psalm 139. This time I want you to look at verse 14 worship team and those involved with the invitation if you want to make your way forward. Let me show you this last response. And it's really the, it's really the final response. It's in verse 14. Do you have your Bibles open? This is what he says. The psalmist writes this. Let's just start in verse 13. Back it up one time and let's read uh, one verse and let's read into it. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And he writes this. This is so good. 
I praise you. I, David, praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I, I'm, David writes, when I, think about, when I just stop to think about what you've done, this is what I recognize. I recognize that you are God, that I am not, and that all that you've done is beyond amazing. It startles me, David writes, with fear to even begin to think about how deep and how great and how far and wide and good you are, God. And as such, he says, I praise you. Now let me show you what praise looks like. All right, there's different people that that interpret worship expression in different ways. But let me just show you what David says God's praiseworthiness would cause us to respond like. He says, I praise you. This is what he says in his body. This is what he demonstrates and this is what he shows as praise. It's this. It's coming to God and putting your hands up and saying, God, I'm recognizing that you are God and that I'm not. I have nothing that can be said to you that you don't know. I have nothing that can be given to you that you don't own. I have nothing that can be proper in response, but just simply recognizing you're God, putting my hands up in the air and saying, God, you are who you are and I am who I am because of whose I am. And that's a response that all of us should have. We should come before God and we should just simply put up our hands before Him and just say, God, you are. And I'm thankful and I recognize, I realize, I accept that my value in this world is based off of who you are. And I am who I am because of whose I am. The only way that you can get to that point is if you turn to God. And I want to tell you that because you have sin in your life, you cannot turn to God. You can't turn to God because there is sin in your life. Sin keeps you from God. But God has made the decision before anything happened that happened, God made the decision that He was going to make a way for you to be able to turn to Him and know Him. And that is through Jesus Christ. You cannot come to the Lord and worship outside of Jesus Christ. You just can't do it. And the reason is because without Jesus Christ, your back is turned to Him. You are an enemy of Him. You are in competition with God. You are separated from Him. And you can't know God because of the sinfulness that's in your life. Because of the sin and the consequences of sin. But God has said, I'm going to send Jesus Christ, my one and only Son, to break the control of sin in your life and the power of sin over your life. And I'm going to deliver you so that you can turn to me and so that you can know me and so that you can respond just like David did, like this. But the only way to get here is to receive Jesus Christ first. And if you have never received Jesus as your Savior, you need to be saved today. And I want to ask you, will you receive Jesus as your Savior? Will you discover that your value is not based on what you've done or what's been done to you, but will you receive Jesus and remember, discover that your value is based on whose you are? But you got to have Jesus. 
It's a non-negotiable. There's no alternative. There's no other way except through Jesus Christ because it is through Jesus Christ that we have been redeemed, that we've been set free, and that we are given entry into knowing God. If you've never received Jesus, I want to invite you to do so today. In a moment, not yet, but in a moment, I'm going to invite everyone to stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. After the prayer, we're going to sing a song of praise. And if you need to be saved, if you want to receive Jesus into your life for the very first time, I'm going to invite you when we're singing to step out into the aisle and to walk forward. I'm going to be up here. We're going to have other ministers standing at the end of the aisle. And we are here to receive you and to talk to you about what it means to have Jesus into your, in your life. If you need to make any other decision, if we can pray with you, if we can encourage you, we're going to be here to receive you at that time. Would you stand where you are? At the close of this prayer, if you need to make a decision for Jesus, that'll be the time to come forward. Lord, we thank you for the morning, for the opportunity to hear your word and to discover your depth. Lord, there may be a man or a woman or a teenager or a child here who has been grappling or felt convicted that they need to be saved. Lord, their life is in disorder. There's chaos and confusion. There's disruptions and interruptions that have conflicted, Lord, in their heart with them understanding their value. And Lord, they just don't feel like they have value, even though they've heard in this message. Lord, we know that, that it's sin that has broken our understanding and blocked us from being with you. And so, Lord, I pray for that man or that woman, God, that teenager or child that needs to be saved, that needs to experience the freedom, the redemption that comes only through, by, through Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that they would respond by faith in obedience and receive Jesus into their heart. And the Lord, that you would break them free. So, Lord, here's our prayer. However you are moving us, God, give us the obedience, the courage to respond. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.